This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you're going to receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Our guest today is Bruce Smith, who is the founder and CEO of Hydro. Hydro is a connected fitness rowing machine that offers live and pre-recorded fitness content on demand where the instructors are actually outside rowing on the water. I'll be honest, this episode was totally serendipitous in the best way. I guess everything that's serendipitous is, is usually a good thing. But... I first tried Hydro when my wife and I were in San Diego, um, staying at this hotel. I'd been wanting to try one and saw it in the gym, in the hotel gym. And I really did love the experience. We were there for three days. I worked out on the Hydro all three days in the morning. I was telling my wife up a storm, just how much I enjoyed the experience. And a week later, I got an email from Hydro's team asking, hey, would you be interested in doing an episode about Hydro and be interested in having Bruce on the podcast? It was awesome. Really enjoyed my time with Bruce. And also, this is a really interesting moment, just what's happening, everything in Connected Fitness. And so really did love this episode. We discussed how Bruce got into rowing and then decided to start Hydro, the overall market of rowing machines in, in the gym, and why the rowing machine is ripe for growth and might overtake the bike in his mind how he and Hydro team thinks about their competition and the current headwinds that are in the connected fitness category. So without further ado, here's Bruce. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. Thanks so much for uh, spending time with me. So why don't start from the very beginning? What got you into rowing? Did you fall in love with was it like was it love at first sight? Did you fall in love with it? Um and and did it like change your life? It definitely changed my life. I would say um so I went to college in at McGill and my first year I didn't really go to a lot of classes, but I did go to the gym a lot um and read a lot of books um and generally liked it that first year thing. And it was really uh I was sitting on the strong machine like every day and I just like, there was something about it. I play the piano and it's the same kind of thing. It's like, there's this rhythm to it and there's this 
like repetition, you get to try over and over again to do something better and better. And a guy came over and was like, you're spending so much time on this machine. You really should just like get out on the water. And that set the hook. And I, I really, you know, I, I've tried to quit a few times, but I, I just, I can't get out. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I've, I've never, um, I've, you know, used a rowing machine before. I've never rowed on a team or anything like that. I did, um, quite a lot of kayaking though, growing up. So understand like that experience of just being on the water, obviously very, very different when you're kind of leisurely kayaking that I was doing versus rowing, rowing in a competition, but, um, still understand how it's, how it's pretty, um, how, or have an idea of how it, how it could be a pretty, um, incredible experience and obviously like a really great workout. Um, so what, what kind of led you to, uh, to coaching, right? Uh, to coaching after college. So I tried really hard, uh, to make the Canadian national team. I'm Canadian. Okay. And, um, and that, you know, it's like, it was a little bit far-fetched and, uh, my coach kind of made fun of me, but I kept going and like trying really, really hard. And I, you know, I finished my undergraduate degree and I was working on my master's degree, which I'd never actually completed probably cause I was rowing so much. And, um, I, my girlfriend moved to Chicago. I moved to Chicago and my plan was to go train in Chicago for a year and then burst back on the Canadian scene and like storm into the Canadian men's aid in 1997 after all the people that I knew who were really good retired. And there would be like an, it would be like a soft year and I would, I would sneak back in there. But instead in Chicago, I got sucked in and I, you know, I did train and I like, I, you know, I I did some work, but I, I got involved in coaching and I loved coaching, you know, it just, it became, uh, this really, really satisfying thing to, uh, try and share, um, this like sh- shared experience of trying to make people do something more than they thought they could. And it, I never looked back. I, you know, I just, I kept coaching and I coached at all different levels. Um, I started with a master's women's team, uh, which was like a part-time thing that like grownups do. And then in high school, I coached at a Catholic school and I started a public school rowing program in Chicago called Lincoln Park Juniors. And then I ended up uh, at Dartmouth for a couple of years coaching. And then finally, I ended up uh, coaching elite athletes. And that was really, really, really fun. Like elite athletes, it's like no rules, everything you can do. And have been to the, um, have been to the world championships 10 times for the United States. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's, that's really, really great. Um, I mean, wow. Well, I mean, what a, what a career. That's really, really impressive. What then led you to want to actually start a consumer products uh, uh, company? And what was kind of the insight that led you to founding, you know, uh, Crew by, by True Rowing, which I, I believe KB then became Hydro. Um, uh, but like, what was what was kind of like that, that founding journey for you? Because I don't believe you had like experience of like finding like a consumer products prob- uh, company or, or so, th- so it was quite, quite a different leap um going from coaching yeah like hey let's go build some hardware in taiwan i have not done that <laughs> uh, yeah. hardware so, of all hardware of all things too <laughs> yeah no it's i like it's hard and i didn't know um just how hard hardware was to build but the um two things happened number one i worked at this rowing club for 10 years and uh it's here in boston and we treated it like a startup and we realized that rowing could have this really, really, really positive impact on people's lives and like everybody, not just like people who are obsessed with rowing, but it's just, it's, it's like a really satisfying thing to do with other people. You find flow really fast. And then the, the other thing was, um, I saw what was happening with Peloton in 2012. They've been like growing and I, I, I have this like basic belief and I think it's shared by a lot of people at this point that rowing is eventually going to replace bikes. But I knew the Peloton would eventually build a rower because it's better exercise. I was really worried that all of the rowing machines in the world 
We're going to lose their connection to the things that make rowing so cool. Because it, like, rowing on a rowing machine without connection to the sport of rowing is really like torture, a torture to, you know, torturous experience. And rowers actually have this, like, antipathy towards, like, rowing machines because it's just, it's like torture. And so I wanted to connect what happened out on the water, which is, like, wild, you know, it's it's incredibly satisfying in a pre-verbal way for human beings to do that, to experience water and synchronicity and rhythm and connect that back to what was happening on those rowing machines in people's homes. Because that's where the magic happens. And honestly, like, the technology didn't exist until like 2015, 2016. And we had to create some new technology of our own to be able to create hydro. But we wanted to make sure rowing machines got connected to that experience in the water. No, no, that's that's really helpful. How how also did you think that's also quite interesting, just how you thought of it of we're not just going to build, you know, a rowing machine and kind of do a, a connected fitness type, uh, maybe take like Peloton's model, maybe a little bit in terms of that, th- that it's connected fitness, but we're not just going to have gyms. We're not just going to have people in gyms and watching gyms. We're actually going to want them to have this experience of what it's like being on the water, even though they're not technically on the water. But I mean, I've done I've. I've used I've I, I've used your machine now a few times and I and I totally get the experience in terms of that you actually have a person on the water and it's really kind of soothing and calming and and just really nice. I'd imagine that the most popular kind of machine in a gym is a treadmill. But where did rowing machines? Remember, you said that you want like rowing machine to replace the bike. Is are is is a stationary bike overall tend to be more popular or maybe has like a larger market size than the rowing machine? So the general statistics, I've quoted this a bunch, and I think it's from Sports and Fitness Industry Association surveys. Basically, the ratio pre-Peloton was 10 treadmills, five bikes, one rowing machine. Wow. And rowing machines were like that dusty thing in the corner that nobody knew how to use, basically. So Peloton came along, and they changed that ratio. And for us, that was really important. So it became 10-7-1. Bikes like went up in popularity because they became much more fun to use, you know. And... The flip side of that equation is that rowing, indoor rowing, is growing at a higher rate on a compound annual growth basis than any other indoor activity. So it's growing at like 6, 7, 8%, while biking is growing at like 3%, and treadmills aren't really growing um, that much. So when you look at the overall trajectory of rowing, like it's inevitable. It's a way better exercise. It uses your whole body. People don't know they have a posterior chain, but they feel they have a posterior chain, and it, turning it on feels good. It's a better use of your exercise time. There are a whole bunch of physiological benefits, which we can dig into. But long-term, that trajectory makes sense. Short-term, like, of course, nobody uses a rowing machine. They don't know how to use it. And it's really, if you do know how, it's, like, boring as all get out. So we wanted to make it incredibly approachable and accessible. And we teach you how to do it. So you sit down, and, like, if you want, we can walk you through. And we actually have live one-on-one coaching if you want to. So we teach people how to do it and we make it not boring so it doesn't suck as much and actually is like really immersive. Yeah. How how do you think, I'd love to kind of dive in or um, or talk about the, the physiological uh, benefits of, of rowing versus maybe other other types of a- a- activities you, you can do. Like why is rowing um, uh, so powerful and, and, and also like a very efficient workout um, compared to maybe other things that you could be, be doing for your body? Yeah. So... There's, it's not really clear. Like there's, there's quite a bit of debate about how many muscles are actually in the human body. Like it sounds like a straightforward question, but it's not. Um, and even how many 
different major muscle groups there are, but basically like there is some consensus around the idea that there are seven major muscle groups in the human body and rowing actively loads, like turns on six out of those seven major muscle groups. If you're uh, on a bike, you are turning on actively two out of those seven major muscle groups. And if you're running, it's like somewhere between three and four, um, that's like just a, you know, that right there, it's like very obvious. You turn on your whole body, it's going to be more efficient. It loads your cardiovascular system better. Really crucial to understand, rowing is one of the only exercises that actually improves your bone density because it compresses all of the muscles in your skeleton at the same time. So all of your bones get like a little micro bend and it's those little micro bends that you get, you get them running too, but that improves your bone density over time. So if you're on a bike, you're actually reducing your bone density. And if you look at professional cyclists, like they have issues around bone density in their later years, rowing doesn't have that issue. It's, it turns your whole body on, loads all of the bones all at once, and then releases them. And that actually, like over the course of years, like it really, especially as like somebody like me in my, in my fifties, it really, it adds up and it makes you like a lot healthier. Those are, those are like two of the major differences. It's also 70% aerobic, 30% strength. And most of the other exercises that you mentioned, they're all aerobic. They don't do anything for your strength overall. Rowing, because it's on-off, you turn your whole body on, then you relax. And then you turn your whole body on, and then you relax. And it is there, there's an important strength component there. So the hormones that get activated in your body because of that loading are just, they're, they're way more beneficial to your overall health. No, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. Um, and I'll, I can go on at length. It's like one of my favorite subjects. No, for sure. <laughs> like, oh, oh, okay. One more question around that. Like, how how does it as well? Um, obviously, it's uh, obviously this is not. Um, you don't you, you don't really have like quote unquote like competition in this area. But how does it how does it, like compare as well in terms of like um, the benefits and the the, the different body parts it, it it works compared to swimming, for example. So swimming is actually pretty good, um, but it's more continuous and not as strength oriented. And swimming has this like unique aspect about calorie burn because usually the water is pretty cold and the heat transfer in water leads to a really big calorie burn. So swimming is really cool. We're big fans of swimming. Um, overall, rowers and swimmers are the fittest, although rowers actually win um, as the fittest athletes at the uh, at the Olympics. Not that I'm biased, but if you do a biopsy, which Olympic athletes do not want to do in competition because it hurts like quite a bit because you stick a big needle in their muscle. But if you do a biopsy, rowers have the healthiest, biggest muscles. And uh, swimming, like if you could have a swimming pool and a rowing machine in your house, that would be excellent. But if you could only have one, I would choose the rowing machine because you don't have to worry about like mold and uh, chemical treatment and making the flume work and all that stuff. Yeah. And I mean, and also it's just very, very, it's just very, very efficient. Doesn't take nearly as much space as a. Uh, exactly. As, no, as I know. Pool. You can, yeah. it takes like, uh, it's like 18 inches by 24 inches for our smaller version. No, totally. Totally. So, um, so you, you began this, um, uh, this hardware company, um, what became Hydro? Um, what were some of the challenges early on? Since this was your first stint at, you know, in, and I, I know that you worked um, a lot of jobs in in like high school and and what have you, but this is kind of like your first real stint in business per se. If that's if that's fair to say, as like yeah or or, or no. No, I kind of like I've been a, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, but I definitely like I watch my like friends in college like go on to be like i bankers and really successful lawyers and like captains of industry and all that crap. And, and I was a little bit jealous. Like I was, you know, I was working at this nonprofit and it was definitely really fun, but I, I wanted to do something and like, 
you know, business. And um, we, it, so we, we effectively started three companies at the same time. We started a software company to do the software to support the, uh, the experience. We started an experience company because we had to film this stuff and nobody had ever done that before. And, and it's basically, it's like a, it's like a live, it, we do live broadcast from the water. It's hard. And then a hardware company. And we started them all the same month, you know, January of 2018. And it was really, it was, it was a total blast. And I'm grateful that I didn't know just how incredibly difficult hardware is. <laughs> it's like, it's like really, really hard. Uh, so it was, it was putting those three things together and I, you know, I had great mentors and great training through the nonprofit world on how to make a dollar uh, go really far. And we had uh, a great first investor who got us off to a really fast start. So I didn't, we, we kind of, our friends and family round was $3 million, which gave, that's what allowed us to move. Instead of just doing a software and content company, we were able to add the hardware onto the, to the vision, which was really that we wouldn't, couldn't have done it without that investment. It was really great. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So it's not just, you know, a, a like an iPad or, or your, or, or something that, that you then just kind of attach to rowing machine that actually everything is connected. Um, uh, so you actually were able to, to have the money. I mean, what, what were some of the challenges in terms of like building like a hardware? Cause I'd imagine that, I imagine that there's, there's so many challenges when it comes, when it comes to it. Um, what were, uh, when you're starting out, that's also great that you kind of had that three three billion that you can do all three. But what were some of like the early like um, run-ins that you had? Uh, trying to figure out like so, how do you find a factory in Taiwan? Like, I have no idea what a good factory looks like or a bad factory. I have you know like so you go and you meet these people. They're really nice. They're really smart, and they've been dealing with you know assholes like me like since their parents were running the business. So it's my first time through and it's their 150th time through with somebody like me. So it was, uh, it, it was the kindness of strangers, like uh, really, truly, like people that I had never met before that I was introduced to. And they were like, oh, I know about Taiwan. And so I, I met a guy who had been building things in Taiwan for different hardware companies for his whole life. And he turned out to be a really honest broker and introduced us to our first manufacturer who were, was like a really great family. And you got to like, you just got to take a leap of faith because you don't, there's no way to tell if they're good or bad. And we got really lucky in our first round. Um, I've gotten to know the family since, uh, SRS Great Fitness was our original manufacturer and it's a family run company, uh, not too big, not too small. And, um, I've seen, you know, my peers run into serious problems with their manufacturing and we just, we got really lucky and we hired a really great team and that. I would say the other key piece um, was the employee number one was an incredibly influential hire because he was extremely well-respected. Chief technology officer, Chris Paul, amazing guy, veteran of eight startups, knew everything to know about startups, had had some really successful exits, just really loves working. And because he was there, he was that thread that we could pull to find that quality mafia. I call them the quality mafia. Like in every industry, there's like, they're like 20% of the people are awesome and 80% are trying to make a buck. And you just got to find that 20%. And CP was the first, like he was the key to that uh, quality mafia, that top 20%. That's really, that's, that's really cool. So how, how many prototypes did it take in order for you to get like the first product out the door? And then once you maybe had the first product that you were comfortable with, how did you even approach, you know, marketing or, and, uh, and the sales piece? So we set a super ambitious goal every, so it usually takes a, at least a year to get a works like, looks like prototype. We got one in six months. We started blank piece of paper in a snowstorm, January 4th, 2018. 
the delivery was June 14th, like a milled out of a $42,000 block of aluminum, a works like looks like prototype of the first hydro, which we still have. It still works really well. And uh, from there, we skipped a step. Uh, ordinarily, you would build um, like 100. We built six, and those were delivered in October. Uh, actually, at that point, we got an offer from Peloton to buy us. John Foley came into the office and looked at them and offered us a bunch of money. And we were like, nope, we're good. Thank you very much. Um, I'm not sure if that was a good good decision or a bad decision, but we, that was the decision at the time. I'm happy with it. And, uh, and so uh, then we skipped another step and we were like, okay, we believe in this design. We've made all of these des- decisions for speed because we know that we're, we need to get to market before anybody else with this. And uh, we went right into production and we had, um, we had a hundred uh, hydros off the line the following January. So within a 12 month period. And I think we were able to skip those steps uh, because we had amazing engineers and we knew exactly the experience that we wanted to deliver. Like there wasn't any, I didn't have any like, I don't know what rowing is, or we don't know what it's like to be on the water. Like we, we knew all of those things really, really, really well. We were genuine experts. So we could, uh, instead of having to do like a design examination and do a bunch of testing, we could actually jump to the, jump to the finish. And it, um, in this particular case, anyway, we were really lucky it worked. So how were, how did you approach selling those first, um, like a, a hundred units? How did you, how did you think about, um, kind of getting the word out when it came to um, hydro? I know we used Indiegogo. Um, I think a lot of people have had pretty good experience. It's incredibly formulaic. I had this like rosy eyed view of Indiegogo, like, oh, you just have a great product and you put it on there, but it's actually just a, it's, <laughs> that's not how it works. Uh, surprise. <laughs> and I was like, wait, you buy people's names. That's wrong. You know, like, uh, but it's, um, it's straight up marketing, but it's a good way to market. And they have a really, really great, uh, formula to get the word out. We thought I didn't want to sell this to rowers. Like I know the rowing community really, really well. And rowers are very conservative human beings and they do not like change. Do not move the cheese for rowers. Like just leave it where it is. So we actively like said, please don't buy a hydro if you're a rower. If you are a rower, tell us what you love about rowing and we'll share it with the world, you know, and that was like an explicit message at the beginning. And the first Indiegogo campaign really paid off. We, um, we compared our buyers. We sold about a thousand hydros roughly, um, on Indiegogo. And that was like way beyond our expectations. And, uh, we compared the list of buyers to the people who had competed in regattas around the United States in the past 10 years. And basically like no rowers bought hydros. It was all non rowers. And for us, that was like a huge proof point. It was like, Oh, we're not a niche. We actually can appeal to, you know, non rowing civilians. It was really, that was like a major, major uh, boost, huge wind in our sales. And I think going back to what we originally talked about, you know, the gym landscape where you have, you know, 10 treadmills and you have maybe five or or now seven um, bikes. Now, you know, the rowing machine, which, which might have only been for rowers because they knew how to do it. Um, there was no like kind of instruction guidelines or manual in terms of how to actually row the correct way. Um, you're actually saying, okay, let's actually not, let's actually appeal to people that are non. So then, you know, kind of in that gym, if you imagine this gym, like then more and more people actually would actually want to um, one a row, which is really cool. Exactly. And it's, um, we're not on our own. Like we had people out preparing the ground for us. So, you know, um, 
when you think about CrossFit, so they have like, I don't know, 16,000 boxes worldwide now, and they started in 2001, and they tell people all the time rowing is the best exercise. Same with Orange Theory, like Orange Theory has 1,500 stores or something like that, and they tell people like, hey, this is the best exercise you can do. So we had people like preparing the soil, and it's really, uh, I think we got extremely lucky with our timing. You know, it was, time, it was time for disruption. Nobody had changed the rowing machine since like 19, the last big change that I know of in rowing machines was like 1991 or 92. Concept 2 introduced like a new uh, little monitor and then they really didn't change it at all. You know, like after that, it was like, that's like no changes. So we're talking like 30, 40 years of the same thing. So, you know, there's definitely like an opportunity to update the technology. So how how did you think about as well on on the product side? Um, obviously, it's um, on the on the actual tech tech side, like the software side. Um, it's obviously very different to a concept um, in that, of course, it's you know a um, connected fitness um, a platform. But how, did you how did you also think about changing, or if you did it all, change the rowing to make the experience? Um, when you actually pulled, it actually more experienced as you wanted it to about what it's like on the water. You know, that's a really good question. So rowers have this thing like, so, okay, you're a Harvard freshman. You've led a gilded life. You show up at the boathouse, you know, your freshman year and you're like, oh, walking the hallowed halls of like future iBankers and you know, you're going to make, you know, $2 billion next year. And you're going to go work for Bill Ackman, uh, who was a, like a third boater at Harvard. And, uh, so you sit down and the first thing they say in the boat is don't talk. You are not allowed to talk and show up early and keep your mouth shut. And there's all of this like struggle and suffering. And um, I had spent 10 years at community rowing upriver, introducing people who hadn't had access to that experience. Like, you know, kids from the neighborhood, military vets coming back from uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, people with mental and physical challenges, like all different kinds of people. Like, hey, no, you can get on the water. It's no problem. And you can do it in 15 minutes and you can actually go out on the water at like three in the afternoon. You don't have to wake up at five. So I had had like 10 years to like wrap my mind around this idea that um, rowing doesn't have to be suffering. It can actually be like you can skip right to the fun part, which is the flow and feeling like that synchronicity and rhythm of moving with other people and being out on the water like you talked about. Like it's it's really it's a super amazing visceral experience to be out there and you can skip a lot of the stuff that rowers have embedded as part of their mythology. So it was really it was taking some words um, Instead of talking about stroke rate, we talk about rhythm. And instead of not talking, we put a camera right on the athlete's eyes who's out in the water with you, and we encourage them to talk. And we play music, uh, which is like, you know, anathema if you're a rower. What do you mean you play music? You can't play music. Like that's like that would like detract from the suffering. So it was it was taking the edges and kind of like sanding them off. And it took, like I started that way and it took me 10 years to uh, wrap my mind around that change. And it, it sounds so stupid in retrospect. It's like so painfully obvious. Um, but truthfully, like nobody had really done it. So um, that was like, that transformation was like a really big deal. And taking that experience of being on the water, using technology to translate a significant percentage of it into your living room. And that's, that's possible now because of cell phone signals and compression and bit rates and synchronization and, and lag time, all of those pieces come together so we could actually do it. No, that's helpful. That's, that's really helpful. How about the, how about like the product itself? Um, like what, like, um, like the actual machine, uh, part as opposed to, um, the software piece, was there any like changes 
So the resistance thing, there's this like magic in hydro, which we don't do a good job talking about. But basically, until hydro, there were three ways you could create resistance on a rowing machine. You could use a, a gas cylinder, popular in the 80s. Um, you can see some pretty funny commercials. Um, you can use a fan or some kind of fan, like a turbine, like Concept2, which is a good solution because air behaves quite a bit like water. Um, in terms of the way it compresses and flows, or you can use a tub of water, which has its own problems. It leaks, it gets moldy, um, but it it does work as resistance, uh, sort of. We wanted to create, like it, it feels incredibly smooth, like it's this incredibly analog experience. And we wanted to have that incredibly smooth experience. So we used electromagnets uh, to recreate the shape of the force curve that you experience in a boat. And nobody had ever done that. It, it's a, it's patented. We own it. Um, a couple of people have infringed on our patent. We have defended it successfully and uh, we will continue to do so. But it's, it's really, it is genuinely like it's something new in the world. And the first hydro, we buried it. Like it's behind this like plastic panel and the, the smaller hydro wave, we put uh, translucent plastic over it. Cause it's really, it's actually really cool looking. It looks like kind of like a Brembo break. It's like, and it's these two electromagnets and we adjust the resistance 240 times a second to meet you exactly where you are. And it changes whoever you are. So Arnold Schwarzenegger can sit down to 20 years ago, Arnold Schwarzenegger can sit down. It will resist Arnold exactly the right amount. You can sit down. I can sit down different, different kinds of resistance and it will meet you exactly where you are every single time and adjust perfectly to that resistance. So you get the really fluid feel that you have out of the water. No, that's helpful because, like, I know, like, on the concept, you you could also make like adjustments. For example, on um, there is this, and I know that, like, on the hydro, um, at least from my experience, like, you couldn't make that adjustment. It was just, um, it was just uh, uh, all kind of smooth or or reacting to you, which was really cool. Well, first of all, I just want to say, like, one of my favorite views on the content side, um, I love like the back view to actually see the boat, um, just because you can like, you can actually see how it's all being made, which is which is super cool. It seem it seems like on the surface, like compared to a you know Peloton or maybe some of your other competitors, um, in even like in the early days of 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 um of these companies, they really just need like a studio, right, to have that kind of experience. So it seemed like you were probably, I would imagine, spending a lot more on content, um, just because you're actually out in the water. Is that what is that roughly right or? Or not really? No, it's actually, uh, so when you think about the rent uh, for being out on the river, so we have the same number of people. We had to buy a boat, but the boat was like $25,000. We have some really fancy equipment and some compression technology that we have. But overall, when you compare that to rent in a studio in New York City, it is radically cheaper. Um, Yeah, no. And also, like, like, when you think about it, like, think about the media that you have a relationship with over the course of your life. And it's the news, it's the weather, it's like live sports, it's things that happen like for the most part, like outside or outside-ish, you know, and that have changing backgrounds. Our big insight was that like, like why why would we put you in a in a studio that looks the same every single day, you know, for a thousand days? It's not going to change for black walls. Like, no, we have the whole natural world at our disposal and that's what we want to bring you to. And it's constantly changing. Like it's just, and we don't, we can't tell what's going to happen. And that was like, I think people, when we started, people were like, well, we can't tell what's going to happen. But actually it's like, no, we can't tell what's going to happen. It's really great. Like how great is that? Yeah. No. And, um, we worked with this really creative lady. I don't know that anybody knows what live outdoor reality actually means, but to us, it means like, yeah, we just, we don't know what's going to happen today. 
and let's go have fun and then we'll find out. And sometimes there's a whale and sometimes there's a dog and sometimes we run into a bridge and sometimes the sun gets in the way. But it's like, you know, it's always different and changing and it's so much more engaging than those four black walls. Uh, just radically, radically different. Huge upgrade in our opinion. No, for sure. For sure. For sure. I mean, I, again, I really liked the experience when I was, uh, well, oh, when I tried it out um, and, and totally understand it. Also really interesting because I always thought on the surface, like you buy or rent a boat, you have to do um, what I think looks like, um, I mean, it is like a lot of like production. It is a huge amount of work. Yeah, huge amount of work. Don't get yeah. me wrong. But like in terms of like, 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 like as a cost structure, my initial um, instinct was it would be far more expensive to do what you do versus maybe what a, a Peloton does or 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 one of your other competitors in the rowing space. Um, what was your so so after back to like um, the Indiegogo campaign? It goes wildly successful. You sell. Um, you're able to get 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 like um, a thousand pre-orders. Um, and so you have to maybe go back to your manufacturer and say, okay, well, we have a hundred, we have to now, you know, um, up it to a thousand. I'd imagine you still probably need, need to raise a bit more money. Um, uh, just because it was so expensive to get how, how did you approach, um, fundraising back then? Cause it seemed like I know Peloton, like I've heard Don Foley story on a couple other podcasts and it seemed like they have a really hard time fundraising in the beginning. Cause they were kind of the first in the connected uh, fitness space when and since you started in like 2018 was it the type of thing that investors already saw like um i mean peloton already was off the ground doing doing uh pretty well that a lot of uh, investors kind of wanted to hop on onto you know the kind of like the connected fitness um um connected fitness and maybe different um types of categories and fundraising fundraising always well i i had never fundraised myself but i imagine it's always a slog and really difficult to do but did you find it actually you were in a pretty unique spot just because you had a lot of maybe you have like quite a bit of investor interest just based off of like the category growing or was it also really tough to fundraise it was incredibly 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 hard (laughs) like yeah ludicrously over the top hard so if i had been fundraising at the time um we had this joke, I should just put Scooter in the name because like Lime and um, Bird and all those people, were, you know, like, oh no, it's a rowing scooter. Yeah, actually. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, no, we go to these meetings and people would be like, oh, cool, connected. It's like the Peloton of, and they, they had heard that pitch like a hundred thousand times already. And then they'd be like, well, rowing's just a niche. So see you later. Um, you know, like, oh yeah, my kid rode, uh, nobody rows, rowing machines suck. Nobody knows how to do them. Um people who do row are like, no, rowing machines are terrible. And, you know, uh, so it was, it was just a constant, like constant no. And I added up, it's like, uh, something on the order of 200 no's. Um, but I made a list of the best investors in my space. The top of the list, number one investor is El Catterton. They invested early in Peloton. They have this great reputation, they had a venture growth fund as well as a private equity fund. And I couldn't get an introduction, couldn't get an introduction. Uh, the son of my earliest uh, board member advisor, Howard Anderson, named Jake Anderson, uh, was a well-respected guy. He worked at Sequoia for a while. He knew one of the partners at Catterton, finally made a great introduction. Um, they got it right away. They were like, oh, because they – so Catterton's thesis is they invest in the best uh, – of whatever category it is. Like, and they looked at hydro and they, we had a pop-up store in Copley here in Boston and they came to the store. They were like, Oh, this is clearly the best. And we were the first investment that they had made in a pre-revenue company ever actually. 
So it's like a, you know, their 30 year history. So it was really, that was like super validating. And then as soon as Catterton was on board, it's the same thing that quality mafia. So we've had five rounds, each led by a different investor, all super high quality people. And it, it never got easy, but it was definitely like that set the tone. And they're just, they're an amazing investor. I love working with them. Super supportive, uh, really, really great talent support, all, all the good stuff that you could hope for. No, that's, that's, that, that's excellent. That's awesome. That's awesome to hear. Um, and uh, well, that's, that's also quite interesting just because considering that, you know, Peloton at that time had been doing, um, pretty well and kind of leading the category, I would have thought that maybe other investors might, might jump on board, but it's kind of interesting that, um, I, as, as we kind of go back to bikes were, I guess, a lot more of a proven, um, category, uh, stationary bikes than, than rowers. It was always, you know, the, the one rower, one rowing machine in the gym. Um, um, as we talked about, that was, that kind of got dusty. So that's, that, that's quite interesting. Well, and there's so many, like, so in the VC world, like a lot of those people, you could actually say probably a lot of those dudes, um, are, you know, are rowers or like had friends who were rowers and we had to immediately exclude them from the meeting because they were like, oh, rowing, please no, like no rowing machines. Like it had to be somebody, it took like a genuine, you know, visionary, um, I think to see it, but it's like the numbers are inevitable. Like the, the transition towards more efficient, better exercises, of course it's going to happen. And it's, we're not doing it. Your tracker is doing it for us. So we're a iFit, uh, Whoop, uh, Apple Watch. All of those things are giving you better and better data about what's going on with your body. Like five years from now, unless you have a very specific goal around biking, you're going to have a hard time finding somebody who chooses a bike for exercise. It's just not going to happen. So what's been kind of the strategy um, on the market side, I mean, um, you you had all these um, uh, pre-orders. You were able to raise pre-revenue from from El Catterton, which is um, incredible. How did you approach, you know, kind of like in your marketing, I guess, to prove to the world that rowing as a as a form of exercise, a, a form of fitness, was um, ex- was um, extremely efficient, and you know, um, uh, and you know, extra, and you know, worked, you know, kind of like the seven major muscle groups. Um, how did you, how did you think about that? Uh, it has this like overhang. So, you know, you think about like, um, a brand like Polo. Um, so Polo has this like, you know, uh, Ralph Lauren, formerly Ralph Lipschitz, um, you know, created this idea of like American aristocracy and Polo and all of that stuff. And rowing has that same kind of like hangover, but it's smaller, but it's still there. And actually, the Winkelvoss twins are early investors in the company. You know, I, I knew them slightly f- through the world championship thing, and I knew their dad a little bit better, actually. And he vetted the investment for them. Um, so there is that, like, cultural thing. But what we wanted to do is take that and, like, flip it on its head. And I think the biggest breakthrough we had was actually having Kevin Hart invest in the company and become our creative director. And it was just, it was, like, huge. Because Kevin grew up, you know, poor in Philadelphia he is not a tall guy. He's a short guy. He's not a white guy. He's a black guy. Like he's just, he's the, he's the antithesis of what people think is like your prototypical, you know, like tall white Harvard rower. Like he's so, uh, so accessible. And I think he's also, he's just like so creative. So his thing, like when we got to know him and when he started to do work on the campaign, he, he helped us get out of our own way and make it simple and 
it was his push to come up with this idea of the hydro high. And we stick to that, like we grab onto that idea, like, and we will not let go because it's so simple. It's the truth. We deliver the hydro high and it's for everybody. And it's, it really is for everybody. It's completely accessible. And um, when we, uh, when we got a call from Chloe's team, Chloe Kardashian to work with us, that was like, we're like, okay, people are getting this. Like, this is good. It's really, really good. You know, like the the bat phone that all the billionaires have. Uh, they, the uh, our investor, like one of our investors, knew his team, and so we got an introduction. And then um, during the pandemic, I zoomed with him a few times, and um, he totally got the he got he got the idea behind it. He was fully behind it. He's a workout freak, you know, like he used to not work out very much, and he's been on his own journey there. And so he's he's like he. He's really good. Like he's a spokesman for like so many brands, but he is just so good at it. And uh, from our perspective, the fact that he put money into the company and that he wanted to take a title, um, he, like it ticked to all the boxes of authenticity and like being real. And like you see it, to, like even on his Instagram today, he'll be like talking to boss, um, Ron, the boss at Reliant, uh, who's his trainer, who's also one of our investors and people and you just see in the background like he's got a couple hydros in his gym and he uses it it's really it's it's authentic and like you scratch the surface it's a real thing and that's super important to us as a as a company and as a brand no that's that's awesome because um definitely we've seen a lot of um celebrities you know be being part of um consumer product companies and i'm always kind of curious about how that kind of happens and meant to be and make sure because a lot of them you know it it um it sometimes goes really well and then, and then other times it doesn't. And so I also appreciate you um, kind of your own analysis about how Kevin Hart became involved and also like what he kind of brings as well. Um, and then also like Chloe, which is um, also incredible. Um, uh, to, I, I'm sure having her as an ambassador. So um, that's, that's super cool. So I know that like during the pandemic, I'd imagine that you got quite uh, a, a considerable bump in sales, just like it seemed like the entire connected industry. Um, no, yeah, it was it, it, impossible it not to. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly, exactly. Since we're all straight from home, looking for something to do, why not go out and get a, 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 a rowing machine? Um, and and of course, like now we've seen at this point, like connected fitness, they they've kind of become a little bit like out of favor. Um, especially if you see like you know Peloton's recent performance, um, and what have you. How are you thinking overall about about the rowing category, maybe specifically first, and then overall like connected fitness? Yeah, so we did a lot of work. We were going to do a spec. We didn't do a spec. Thank thank the goodness we didn't. Uh, you know, like hallelujah, um, praise be. Whatever other you know great things you can say about not doing spacs now, but uh, we did a ton of work uh, in advance of that. We did a lot of research on the overall size of the market. And we know that market penetration is going to get to the high 40s in terms of connected fitness in the USA, and it'll get at least to the 20s uh, worldwide. And that's based on, you know, like statistically relevant samples, like we're talking 3,000 people being interviewed at length by smart people. So we have a lot of confidence in the overall size of the market. There was a huge pull forward in the pandemic. So the bolus of people that were going to buy connected fitness between 20, like, you know, let's call it 2020 and 22, 2022 or 2023 even got pulled into a very concentrated period. So that market adoption got compressed into, you know, like a year and a half of, of collective misery. And 
I don't think it's going to change the overall trajectory of the market penetration. You know, like like in 2025, you'll draw a line from 2020, say 2015 to 2025, the line will be straight and it will continue at market penetration growth of like 7, 8, 9, 10%. And it will get up into the high 40s. And then at that point, it will be incremental growth. But we're still, you know, there's definitely a dip after a wave, like a, like every wave. But that long-term market penetration for us. So that's that's the overall picture. And then internally, the dynamic that we have working in our favor is that people are just much more aware of their time investment. And do you want to work out for an hour on a bike or half an hour on a rowing machine? And the answer is super clear. And so those internal dynamics are changing. I also, it's hard, like, I love, so I love biking, I love running, Um but it's hard to justify like the eight by four foot footprint and the danger of having a treadmill in your house. Like if you have pets or dogs or like, you know, kids or whatever it is. So I think that that long-term trajectory towards rowing machines away from other modalities is also strongly in Hydro's favor. Um, we're, su- we're super bullish about the future and, and in a really great spot as a company overall as a result. I think, and, and, and this is, seems like what, you you've been successful at doing but will continue forward it's making the row the rowing machine more, more accessible um to people that are outside of rowing that um you know i know that this is you know a workout maybe for people to actually get on the water and um even though that's actually maybe mo- much more accessible than you think it is um because it seems like that's so foreign or oh i have to maybe uh, do all these things in order to get there but um that's also really, really interesting but but actually like this be like a you know a, a great workout on its own don't worry about that but we're going to also show you a little bit about about that experience with our um workouts um how are you also thinking about in terms of sales like um like are you are you thinking as well as we kind of come out of the pandemic into um it's be more into gyms and also hotels yeah uh your experience exactly like you go to a hotel and you try the hydro because it's so it's hard like you can't walk by the hydro and know what it is. Like you actually, and you can't even like sit on it and row on it for a couple minutes and know what it is. You have to sit down and do a workout. Like that's the only way to know what hydro is because you need your headphones on or like you need sound, like you need the sound to work. You need to sit there and you need to sweat for a little bit. And that is the only way to really understand like, oh crap, this is for me. Like it's, it's actually super accessible and engaging. And uh, being in commercial environments is just a huge opportunity. And we're working actively with uh, all the hotel chains, uh, all the gyms. We're in active conversations with all those people. And uh, I think that that opportunity, like it's never going to be a huge percentage of our sales, but it's a really important part of our awareness. And uh, we see that as, you know, it's long term. um, It's just exceptional in terms of the opportunity because it's one of those triple wins. You make money and you get to market. And, uh, and the people who buy it from you, the hotels get to charge more for their room rate because they have this awesome gym. And like, I know a lot of my friends choose their gym, choose their hotels now based on what kind of gym they have. So there's, there, it's, it's one of those things that stacks. It's like, it's like an exclusive good on multiple levels. It's really, really powerful. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great to hear. Um, what is, um, maybe one or two learnings that you've had since this was, you know, your 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 first shot t- a CEO of like a tech company, um, what were maybe a couple of your like big learnings that maybe you weren't obvious um, when you first started your journey at uh, Hydro? <laughs> There's so many. It's like, uh, okay, uh, the biggest one is that 
people who work in big companies with really responsible jobs do not necessarily understand their tradecraft. They understand big companies. And that's like big companies are their own kind of beast. And so as we were growing really fast, I was hiring some people from big companies and and it was just it was it was like a complete surprise to me because I'd never worked at a big company. I'd always like I'd done entrepreneurial stuff and I'd worked in rowing clubs and I coached a lot, but I'd never I'd never experienced like quote unquote company culture. And I just I didn't understand that culture could be its own aim as opposed to the mission of the company. And so I have become hyper-focused on people who are really, really, really mission-driven and they want to deliver against the goal, the overall goal of the company, not the mission of their department. And it's really, I was like, I was flabbergasted. I had no idea that that's how things rolled around here. Like the United States has like a lot of people who go to work thinking about how to protect their department inside a company, not people who are thinking about the mission of the, the overall mission of the company. And it like, you know, no judgment. It works like, you know, like these big companies are really successful. They make a ton of money. That's just not who we are. We are entirely mission driven and you got to make sure that people on the bus are like mission driven in the same way. It's a great point because we talked a bit about the show about, why potentially not not always but but potentially when you have someone that comes from a big company and it's like a great logo and it's a great you know kind of brand that they've been a part of they might not necessarily be the best um best hire just because they're maybe used to working with like big budgets and they're used to working with um uh with you know maybe a team or maybe it's just them right and uh and they have to kind of get scrappy and um and anyway but that but but what you mentioned is like it is also a great point um, um, as well, um, in terms of, you know, that at big companies, they're very much concerned about making sure the like department is performing, not so much, maybe like the big overall company. Cause of course you want those big bonus checks or, or what have you. And so, and so actually that's actually maybe another reason, um, uh, why, again, I'm sure there's a lot of examples of, of big people from, from, from corporates coming to the startup world and, and being successful, but that's just one thing to consider when you're, if you are making the jump, um, that that could be quite different in terms of the culture. It's really different. The, there are just so many uh, really, really interesting things. The other thing is just how deeply conservative people are. And um, from investors uh, to the people, even so internally, like we have a bunch of like high risk, like high appetite, high risk people who work here. But as soon as we get a procedure in place and it's there for like, I'd say like 14 months, people are like, you can't change that procedure. That's crazy. You can't change that. But I'm, and I'm like, but it didn't exist. Like we made it up. It was like totally pretend like it was not there before. And they're like, but, but that's how we do it. It's really important. Like that's how we do it. And you're like, hmm, actually you can, you can burn it down to the ground and, uh, and do it a different way, uh, like more than once. And that, uh, conservatism that people have is like, it is baked in and it requires constant, um, I would say like pruning and fertilizer to make it work. Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a really great point um, as well. Um, What's, what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Personally, I read Anna Karenina like at least once a year, sometimes twice. Uh, It's the greatest English novel in my opinion or greatest, sorry, it's written in Russian, but obviously, but it's, uh, it's just, it's like a complete catalog of, of, possible responses to being a human being and when i read it again i can like it's like a it's uh it's like a an x-ray on how i'm feeling because you the different characters personify different responses to 
the existential problems of being, you know, alive in a society. And I love it so much. It's so good and so much fun to read. And I just read this book uh, called Disrupt Disruption by Pascal Finet. Um, I was uh, teasing him a little bit about the the corny title, but the book is amazing. And uh, it's really, really good. Uh, It's a fabulous book. Um, It captures, from my perspective, it captures exactly how to get the most important things done in your company and what to look for. And what to watch out for is really, um, it's one of those books that takes a really complicated subject and makes it seem very simple, which is, I think, one of the very hardest things to do. So fabulous, fabulous book. No, that's that, that's awesome. Both of these books, I don't think, have been mentioned before. I mean, on the, on the show before. So uh, very original, Bruce. This is great. This is great. Really excited to add this to the list. My final question to you is, um, what's maybe one piece of, piece of advice maybe you wish you had or um, before maybe you started, um, hydro. If I could say anything, it's that, uh, you need to be prepared to share your story 10,000 times with the same degree of care, compassion, interest, energy. I'm kind of a low energy human or I'd like, I think I, you know, I'm Canadian. I come across as like pretty laid back maybe, but if you can't be authentic. Like if you, if you can't peel back the layers and connect with people like over and over and over and over again, um, you should not be a founder because that is the only way to bring people on. And your, your main job is to, is to recruit people. Like you're, you're basically like a full-time recruiter for people and money. And if you don't want to do that, um, go work for somebody who will do that for you because it's really that, that part, I did not understand it. And it's, a, I love it. I think it's such a great challenge. And like talking with you today, like it was so much fun to hear your questions and interact. And, and you have to be, uh, you got to be up for that like two or three times a day, every day. And uh, that's unique. <laughs> There's, there aren't a lot of other jobs like it being, I think, you know, running for the United States Senate is very similar, but uh, it's, it's that level of engagement with people on a serial basis. Yeah. And I, I, I appreciate how you said, like, you, you have to be prepared to share your story over and over and over again. And you have to have that same level of excitement doing so, even if. And you, you got to love it. Yeah. It's got to be real. If, it, if it's not real, then people immediately say goodbye and they don't want to talk to you ever. Totally. Again. Totally. Um, well, Bruce, this has been so much fun. Thanks for your time. And also just want to say, um, like, one of my first touch points with Hydro as a brand seeing it, I, I'm a big Washington Capitals fan. Um, and I believe you sponsor the Washington Capitals or, or, or maybe, and I remember seeing your logo. I remember seeing <laughs> your logo. I was watching the Caps games with, with my dad and I was like, oh my gosh, like that, like, like, and I like knew a little bit about you. I'm like, oh my God, like Hydra is sponsoring, um, the Caps. This is sweet. So, um, anyway, if you can <laughs> keep awesome. that sponsorship going, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah, uh, okay. so, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll so, uh, thanks again, Bruce, for your time. Yeah, no, it's a uh, great talk. Thank you very much. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Bruce. Bruce, I really appreciate your time and coming on the show. It was so great connecting. And from my experience in San Diego, really love the product. Really did. I, th- I think it's very special what you're building. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really, really appreciate it. So and what are typically like the fees that are associated Um uh, with what whether you set up a, a Vobin account or even if you um, if you want to you know run um, your investment for, uh, portfolio off of um, Vobin um, or another one, what's what's typically your um, um, the cost that, that you're going to uh, incur? 
Yeah, from a cost perspective, we're extremely price competitive. Um, so if you went through the traditional route, you'd have to go to a, you know a fund lawyer. You'd have to go to a, you know high street bank or you know a major bank to get a bank account for the investment vehicle, and then you'd have an administrator kind of administer the SPV until there's an exit. Um, overall, costs can be north of you know twenty k. Um, when you go through a platform like Vobon, you know, we charge about 8K, uh, which includes the lifetime administration of the SPV, including the legals, the banking, the investor onboarding and the administration. So um, rel- relatively cost uh, effective. Um, I would say, you know, in terms of deal size, it can be anywhere from 50K allocations on upwards. How does that 8K kind of get broken down? Is that um, if you're like a pretty active um, I guess, like, if you're a pretty active investor, maybe you're not using the platform for just one investment, you're using it for several. Does that come up? Does that kind of churn out to like 8K annually, or maybe part of that 8K um, annually? Or, or how does it kind of work as a function? Yeah, definitely. So it's it's a transactional fee. So once, you know, you have, you know, significant interest from investors wanting to invest into, you know, the allocation or the company that you're fundraising for, um, it'd be paid on the back end. So once you've successfully fundraised, so there is no economics upfront. It's only once you've successfully fundraised, uh, which is, you know, extremely beneficial. There's no downside risk for you to create an SPV. So there has been, you know, clients where, you know, they're structuring an SPV, but, you know, their anchor investor falls through or, you know, it's super competitive and, you know, the lead VC just takes the full round for themselves. So they're not left carrying the bag of, you know, creating a legal entity and, you know, bearing the costs. Um, So it's only paid once you've successfully fundraised. Um, And it's a one-time fee, which covers the lifetime administration. So, and that's one-time fee. So that would be, you have to pay 8K every time, for example, you set up like a new SPV. Yeah, that's correct. So it'd be one-time fee for that single uh, investment vehicle. And then, you know, if you're looking at the lifetime administration uh, for venture capital investments, it can be anywhere from seven to 12 plus years. Um, so, you know, we, we'd manage it through uh, until then. If you are loving the show, I highly recommend checking out the newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. I'm also doing some more events, so you'll also be the first one to receive information about those.